What an amazing story. And I just, I just wonder, watching that, do you have a story? If you were to sit down in front of a camera, do you have a story of a time when God radically, radically intervened in your life and you weren't, you weren't doing it? God did something permanent inside of you. Maybe today is the day where your story could begin with the Lord. And um, we go into God's Word each week together as a church. Uh, today we're going to learn about who God wants to make us in Christ Jesus. So let's pray, and then we will open God's Word together. Father, what a glorious testimony we just heard. And that story took a long time to write. We get so impatient, we lose heart, we look around and think that there's no hope, and yet you are faithfully at work even to this very day. We invite you to go to work in our hearts. We invite you to do a, a wonderful, powerful thing within us through your word, through your church, through the gospel. We invite you to touch our minds and our hearts this morning as we open up to you. And we pray that we would leave here different. We pray that we would leave here encouraged. We pray that we would leave here transformed by the power of the gospel. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to the book of Romans chapter 8. The series is called Nail It Down, which is a nod to the Reformation. 500 years ago, the Reformation uh, happened 501 years ago, and we're celebrating that. We're also nailing down some things in our hearts found in God's Word between us and the Lord. In Romans chapter 8, the sermon is called More Than Conquerors, and we're learning how God has displayed His commitment to us and His commitment to our world. We're learning throughout the book of Romans many things. In fact, we've got the five major themes in the book of Romans we'll put up on the screen. We've covered a lot of ground. Sin, what is right and wrong. Salvation, how can I be saved? Sanctification, how can my behavior change? And now we're moving into the section of the book that deals with sovereignty. How did God's plan unfold? And then we'll hit service, how can I serve a holy God? We're in the section now about sovereignty. The passage today is all about what we should believe about God's love. Sometimes God's word informs our mindsets and teaches us what to believe. Sometimes the biblical passages we're in deal with how we should behave, how we should act. Uh, if we don't get the right mindset, if we don't get the right heart frame of reference, then our behavior will always be wrong. So God's going down into the roots today of what we think about Him, what we know about Him. And if we cling to these truths uh, in the dark days, if we cling to these truths when life gets hard, when we feel all alone, when we see, it seems like we're rejected and, and misunderstood and ashamed, and we're even wondering if God has forgotten about us, we're going to find tremendous confidence in this life. In Romans eight thirty one. Uh, here's what it says. The Apostle Paul is writing, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? You'll notice in this passage that the Apostle Paul reasons by asking questions about God's love. There's like five questions he's asking about God's love. And we're supposed to find out the answer because it's implied in what he's saying. Uh, the first thing you can jot down in your notes is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is portrayed in the Bible as many things. He's a father. He's portrayed as a builder. He's portrayed as a lot of things. One thing that he's portrayed as here is a judge. It says here, who shall bring, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So God is cast in the role of a judge here. And he is a judge. Many people don't like that about God. Many people don't like the thought that God is a judge who will determine the destinies of every man, woman, and child who's alive today and who has ever lived before. But he is a judge. Check out this picture. It just reminds us of what we see in a courtroom. There, there is a verdict. There is a gavel. There is a trial. And when that sound, when the sound of the finality of your judgment is finally heard in the courts of heaven, your fate will be permanent. And there are only two destinations of where you can end up. God can declare you not guilty, and then you'll enter his kingdom for all time, or you'll be declared guilty, and you'll go away from his presence for all time. Are you ready for that moment? Are you ready for the moment when your life is to be evaluated? Or are you not sure how that will turn out? The Bible does not want us to live with fear. The Bible wants us to live with confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us? Saying that is one thing. God is for me, right? Saying it on the football field is, oh, God is for me. Yeah, but that's not where it's set. The setting of this, of this uh, conviction is in a courtroom where you're on trial for your life. It's in that setting that we hear the phrase, if God is for us legally, who can be against us legally? And we're supposed to conclude no one. If the judge is for me, no one can be against me. It, it would be foolish for, you know, who can bring a charge? It would be foolish for the judge to say, not guilty. And someone over in the stands, I think that there are no good guilty. The judge is like, silence. This is my courtroom. I'm for her. You can't be against her. Do you see the security we find when we understand that God is for us? Jot this down. God sent his only son to die for us, and this is the basis of God's posture toward us legally. It says here, he did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also in him, with him, graciously give us all things? It says in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. The basis of our confidence in God's court of law is God made a sacrifice, he made a payment. He fulfilled the law on your behalf. He did your heavenly homework for you. Uh, Jesus on the cross accomplished something that you can't accomplish. He did a work that you can't do. He paid the penalty for all of your sins. He took the debt for all of your transgressions. He died in your place. Now, if you disagree with the verdict if you're like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I live life the way I think it should be lived. You will never understand what Jesus did for you at the cross because you think you're righteous. But in God's court of law, you're not. You're guilty. If you agree that God's judgment is just, the only way for you to appear before a holy God with confidence is if your judgment has already taken place before you arrive. If it's over, if it's finished, that's the only way you get into heaven. And great news for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus said it on the cross, right? Here's a picture of the scene of the cross. Jesus said it on the cross, right? There he is, the man of God, with all the weight of the world on his shoulders. There's the son from heaven who came down to save us. And what did he say? What did he say? He said, it is finished. Jesus made the final payment for your sins on the cross. 
That's your only hope. It says, he was condemned. He was condemned. Therefore, who is to condemn us? The idea here is, there you are on trial in front of the judge, and someone there, Satan, someone there, your enemies, you know, they deserve the chair. I've got a billion things that person did wrong. They, they should never go to heaven. And the judge says, you're right, but the sentence has already been handed down. In fact, death has been handed down. Someone was executed on this person's behalf, and therefore the trial is over. Is that your hope? When you stand before God, is your hope, I'm pretty good, I've got a sash with merit badges of everything I've done to impress God. And when he sees me, he's going to want me in his kingdom. Are you standing on your own righteousness, or have you abandoned that? And have you said, hey, hell is my fault, and I belong there, but my debt has been paid by Christ. Is that your heart? God sent his only son to die for us. God is for us. He took the penalty on himself. The demands of God's justice were fulfilled by God's love in his son. God is for us. Hey, listen, all justice you enjoy in the next life belongs to Jesus. It's his, not yours. Are you banking on that? You will either reflect God's wrath or God's mercy for all time. You'll reflect his wrath or you'll reflect his mercy. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus who died and was risen, then you get to enter his kingdom. God sent his only son to die for us, and if he is for us, who can be against us? Jot this down. God will give us all things in Christ. God will give us all things in Christ. So first we look back and we see that God has sent his son to die for us. Now we're looking ahead and we're seeing what comes in the box with the son of God. Right? What, what comes in the box? And it says here in Romans 8, it says in Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point is, if God the Father said yes to the demand for his only son to enter the world, to live the perfect life, to die a horrible, torturous death, and to raise... From the dead. If God said yes to that, do you really think he's going to say no to lesser things? In Christ, he has said yes to everything you will need and desire for eternity. Do you struggle with feeling like God is primarily saying no? He's just a straitjacket in the sky who wants to take all of my fun away and wants to ruin everything. He just says no, no, no. I've got to tell you, I read a great story this last week about a mom whose children just wouldn't stop complaining about the fact that she always says no. Have your kids ever said that to you? You always say what? You always say no. Always. So Lucy Cavendish wrote an article about what she did about this May 18th of 2011. She says this, like most children, my own brood complains constantly about my style of parenting. You always say no. You say no to everything, says Leonard, her eight-year-old son. And she's got Jerry, who's six, and then Adeline, who's three. And they list everything she said no to. You said no to this and this and this and this. So she finally got fed up. She decided to do an experiment. For an entire week, she would say yes to everything her kids wanted and see what happened. 
And she wasn't even going to tell them. She was just going to say yes. Well, because they didn't know, well, first of all, she's like, I didn't know how this was going to turn out. She said, what if they wanted to swing on the curtains and paint the walls red? She said, there's only one way to find out. So she went into this. Day one, the kids didn't know. So they started to suspect something when, when they're like, can we eat breakfast in front of the TV in the living room? And she's like, sure. And they, of course, can't do that. So she said their heads popped up, and they did it. And they, of course, get food all over the, you know, the carpet. And she's like, mind the ants. And they're like, we like ants. And she just took it and moved on. But they, they weren't really, like, they didn't really know what was going on. So they asked to bring chocolate cookies to school. And she's like, sure. And they're just like, but they didn't know. So they made it through day one. And then day two, they're like, why are you being so nice to us? And she's like, what do you mean? Nothing. Hot chocolate for breakfast? Sure. Ten go-gurts for each of you in your lunches? Absolutely. Alan demands to go to school dressed in a rabbit costume? Go put it on. Can we make a cake when we get home? Yep. Can we eat it? Yep. Can we eat the mixture? Yep. Can we make a mess on the floor? Sure. They did all of that. And she just tells them, you're going to get sick. And sure enough, ten minutes later, they all feel sick. They still don't know what's going on. Day three. While she's getting ready for the morning and she's got a lot to do, her son asks to read a book about Egypt. Sure. They sit down for 30 minutes, read a book about Egypt, then he asks to go to Egypt. (laughs) She says, yes, but it's going to cost a lot of money. And he says, well, can I wash cars until we get enough money? And she says, yes. (laughs) Yes, you can. Dodged a bullet on that one. Day four, they asked her to stand on her head for 30 minutes while they fed her cookies. She did. Then they asked to stay up as long as they wanted to, and sure, can we get another puppy? Sure. She said by day six, thankfully they forgot about the puppy, but they all felt terrible. They were fighting with each other. It was an absolute mess, and when she woke her son up from his nap and said, you can't sleep right now, he said, I hate you. I hate you. They were absolutely, completely imploding. By day seven, they were all worn out. And then the experiment ended. You know, we think that if we just got a yes every time we wanted everything, that we'd be happier, right? Kids, why? You know, just, you say no too much. Do you think God says no too much? Do you think God's up there like the worst parent in the universe? And he just just doesn't want me to ever have, and do you think the world would be better If God would just say yes to everything you want. Listen, here's what the Bible says. He already has. God's already said yes to everything that you will need to be eternally satisfied. In Christ, he's already said yes to everything. Already done it. But we haven't seen that yet. Because it says he will give us all things in Christ. Which means it's coming. What he said yes to in Christ is absolutely unbelievable eternally. Now, I know there are things throughout your day that you would like to have. Well, why doesn't he say yes to a car upgrade? How come I don't get a pay raise? He's not your genie. You're asking for much smaller, much more pathetic things compared to what he's already said yes to. And I want to be careful here to not give you the impression that the prosperity gospel is being taught here when it says, will not God give us all things in Christ Jesus? This is primarily describing the future that he has secured for you through the gospel. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. If you think that faith is even better when it comes to the free car, you're deluded. 
The idea that I can have all the riches of this earth now because of what Jesus did, and, and if I'm rich and healthy, then God must love me, that's a false gospel. Okay. Uh, God will not give you everything you need in this life. You will go through trial after trial. He will actually take things away to humble you. But that doesn't mean he's a God who always says no. This is a God who has said yes to giving you everything in Christ Jesus. And if he said yes to that, if he is that for us, who can be against us? God will give us all things in Christ Jesus. He's already decided it. God sent his only son in the past. He took care of all of our sin problems. In the future, he will give us all things in Christ Jesus. But there is a present tense to what's happening in this text too. So jot this down. Jesus is interceding for you right now. Jesus is interceding for you right now. It says, who is to condemn? Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, Jesus is interceding for those who love him. Right now, Jesus is interceding for you if you are his follower. This is present tense. He is interceding for you in the very courts of heaven. He is your advocate. He's the one who speaks on your behalf. Listen, I don't know what you were raised on. I don't know what you were taught growing up, but the Bible is very clear. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again. He was raised in front of witnesses who saw it happen. And he is alive right now. He is alive right now. And he's in God's court of heaven, ruling and interceding for the saints. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus is interceding for you right now. All glory you enjoy in the next life belongs to Jesus. You will reflect his greatness forever. And all advantage you enjoy in this life belongs to Jesus. You will reflect his presence for all your days. So look back. Look ahead. Look around. If God is for us, who can be against us? Wow. Well, reading on in verse 35... It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Number two, here's the question. Write this down. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If God is for us, number one, who can be against us? But there's a problem. He just made all this effort to say, God is so for you, past, present, future, for you, for... And then it's like, we're being put to death. I mean, th these Roman Christians really struggled. Uh, it didn't happen yet, but Emperor Nero was coming to power, and he was going to blame the Christians for the fire in Rome, and, and he was going to kill Christians in the arena, throw them to the lions. This, this guy was so sadistic that he took Christians... And, and displayed them up on pikes in his garden and lit them on fire to light his garden parties. Okay, this is how sick the ruler of the day was. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, Nero? 
So now, now, now Paul's dealing with this next question. Well, what happens when, when it doesn't seem like God is for us? Right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's very honest. There will be tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. But all those things will fail to break the loving bond between Christ and his followers. Those things will fail to do permanent damage to the believer of Christ. That's the hope. The hope the Bible gives you is not that God will take all of your pain away and give you everything that you want right now. That's not the hope. The Bible gives us something greater than that. Even if those things come into your world, you will still arrive safely on the shores of eternity. Nothing can stop that from happening. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I love this idea of being inseparable. When you look up, you and Christ being inseparable. Uh, Lauren surprised me this week. She's like, you need a day off. You know, I went several weeks where it was like really hard to get a day off as we were following up with some stuff. So she's like, you're getting a day off. Thursday, you're getting a day off. I was like, all right. So she planned this thing where we went downtown to a really cute restaurant in Greek town. And then we walked over to this rock climbing facility. And it really blew us away. Check it out. Here's some pictures of this rock climbing facility. It's pretty scary because at this particular place, they walk you around and they show you all of these climbing walls. And then they show you how to like hook on. And then they're just like, good luck. After you sign the waiver of death, they're like, good luck. You know, they don't have people there with the ropes. They've got like this automated thing up top. And you're looking up at this automated thing. And what you do is you're, you know, that guy fell on me, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> I survived. But anyway, you got to watch out. It's not, not safe. But you, what you would do is you'd climb up on this thing. And if you were to slip, this like big device would go like this. It would like catch you and then lower you down. But I'm just looking at that thing like... Like, what's the shelf life of that thing? <laughs> There's got to be a count. Like, once it hits, you know, 9,992, you know, like, expires, right? So I'm like, are there still some good catches in there? You know, how much do I weigh after Easter, you know? What's the weight limit on this thing? I just got all these questions, right? But I'm connected, and I'm climbing, and I, you know, I test it when I'm nice and low. And when you get all the way to the top, you have a faith decision to make. Is this going to hold me or not? Thankfully, we couldn't get very high on the medium stuff that they started us on. Then we found the kitty area, you know. All the holders were pink with little smiley faces on them. We got up there real fast to the top. And then you look down, and you're like, <gasps> of course, I don't let Lauren know that. I'm just like, got it. <laughs> then I got to push off. And for a second, I'm like, does this thing have me? You know, and, and then time after time, you know, it... it it connected me. And I, I thought to myself, that's really a lot like what is described here in the Bible. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? When we look up, we're like inseparable to Christ. We are harnessed in heaven. And it doesn't matter if, you know, how, how suddenly we feel like we're, fought, we're inseparable. We are harnessed to Christ. And, and he's like, I've got you. And then the next day when something happens, I've got you still. And then something else, I've got you still. And you can check the clip. Do you? Yeah. You're okay. That idea of just who can separate us from the love of Christ is meant to give us tremendous peace. He'll never let you go. This text zeroes in on pain primarily associated with persecution. The Bible here quotes Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. So, so like, worst possible situation. You're, you're dying because you're a Christian. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I just feel like I'm in a line, like an animal being put to death. But those things are failing to separate us from the love of Christ. Notice what it implies here. It implies that when you have pain, when you have persecution, when you're suffering, that automatically does not equal God is against you. All right, we feel that way, right? Trial, what did I do to deserve this? God must be against me. No, no, that's not it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or... So if we put these in buckets, here's where we can invite God to display his love. Jot this down. Invite God to display his love in your relational trials. Relational trials. So you've got like trouble, tribulation, which means like anguish. You've got persecution, which is other people uh, harming you or threatening you. You've got distress. The word distress there in the Greek means like you're being squeezed. You ever feel like you're just, you're just being squeezed, right? And a lot of these things are the result of relational trials, relational trials. And these relational trials can be exhausting, depressing, heartbreaking, frustrating. You wonder where it will end. And the Bible is clear. God is for you. And his love is flowing to you. And he wants his love to flow through you while you're persecuted, while you're in anguish, while, while you're in the middle of all of that. You're tethered to his love. So understand when life gets hard, God has a plan for your pain. And invite him. Say it to him. God, display your love for me in this trial. You know, you've got broken relationships. I know it. Everyone does. God, have you asked him, display your love for me in this trial. And even better, display your love through me, through me in this, in this trial. Jot this down. Invite God to display his love in your material trials. In your material trials, it says here, shall famine, so no food, or nakedness, no clothes, famine or nakedness, these are like, these are like physical trials. Famine or nakedness, uh, it's always funny when nudity comes up in the Bible. We've got a, there are a lot of parts in the Bible where, you know, awkward nudity, like in, in Genesis, you know, it's awkward on the flannel graph when you're trying to teach kids how the whole world began, you know. And then in the Easter story, or the Good Friday story, you know, uh, one of the disciples had to fled, na- fled naked into the night because they grabbed his clothes. It's just funny when nudity shows up in the Bible. But the idea here is either because you're persecuted or because you're so poor, you don't even have clothes to wear. Right? You, don't even, you don't even have clothes. So imagine God is for me and I'm naked. How do those things go together? Yeah, that's all covered by God's plan. When you have material trials, when you don't have even clothes because someone took them or because you can't afford them, whatever, God is for you. When there's a famine, when you don't have food, when you don't know where the money's going to come from, God is for you. God is for you. And God's love can be displayed in provision for you. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Wow. Do you embrace that when God brings a trial into your life, even a material trial, that he's doing it to show his love for you? That he's doing it so that his love can flow through you? That, or do you automatically react? You know, 
to, to the trial, to the hardship, when a relationship blows out or you have a need and you don't know how it's going to be met. Is your reaction like, well, God must be against me. That's it. He's against me. He is for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You are harnessed to heaven. None of this is letting you fall away from God. Jot this down, physical trials. So you've got relational trials, material trials, and then physical trials. So like danger, it says danger, or sword, which means the threat of violence. Like your body is literally being threatened. Now this could also be health problems. This could also be health problems, sudden accidents, natural disasters. And God doesn't shut off the flow of his love. And the promise of his sovereign affection for you is guaranteed for all time. He will love you in this trial. He, he will love you. He won't take all of your pain away. He will use it for his purposes. If God is for us, who can be against us? I like what John Piper says. He says, our afflictions are the health regimen of an infinitely wise physician. Our afflictions are the health regimen of an infinitely wise physician. When God allows pain to come into your life, it's because he's perfecting his love inside of you. He's got you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Know his love. Rely on his love. And let him shepherd you through this. Number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? He sent his only son to die for us. He'll give us everything in Christ. And he's interceding for us right now. Number two, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not relational trials, not material trials, not physical trials. Look at verse 37. It says, No, in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Jot this down. Number three, we are more than conquerors in Christ. More than conquerors in Christ. One metaphor that the Bible uses to describe this world. Your entire life is a victory parade or a parade of defeat. And elsewhere Paul says, It feels like we are being paraded in the streets as conquered people. Headed for the arena. right? It, it feels like we're on display as those condemned to die. When the world sees us, they see our little parade, people following Jesus to the end. They see us and they're like, what a pathetic bunch of absolute losers. What a filthy, forsaken, death-bound group of people who are leaving our society and we're glad that they're going. But God doesn't see it that way. God sees it as a victory parade. We are more than conquerors. There have been many conquerors throughout human history. Alexander the Great went out on conquest and, and rapidly expanded the kingdom. There's also Julius Caesar with the might and the power of the Roman army. There's also Attila the Hun. We've got pictures of all these conquerors up there. You can pick your favorite if you'd like to. Read a little book on them. Genghis Khan. They make statues of these conquerors. They, they put monuments up to these people who have who have expanded earthly kingdoms. Napoleon, right? What, what a great war hero. Now grab all of the achievements of all of those men combined and it's nothing compared to what Jesus accomplished. 
Jesus is the ultimate conqueror of humanity. Why? Because he rode off from heaven to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, to defeat death. And he returned in victory to the roaring shouts of the saints and angels in heaven. He did it. He did it. No pathetic earthly kingdom. Doesn't matter how many people threw flowers at Genghis Khan. He's rotting in a grave. Jesus is alive. He's alive. And therefore we are more than conquerors in Christ. Jot this down. In life and in death. This includes everything natural. Hey, life can't hurt you. Death can't even hurt you. If you're a follower of Christ, death does no permanent damage to the believer. Jesus even describes it as saying, anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, how can he say that? Right? If I'm going 80 miles an hour the wrong way on 294, I'm going to die. Nope. Christians don't die. We blink, and then our faith becomes sight. Death is a doorman. He's just like the Walmart door greeter. Welcome to heaven. Welcome to heaven. Right? There, I, my favorite Walmart door greeter, I used to work at Walmart. His name was Gar. He was from the South. Gar. And he'd be like, hello, my friend. And when I think of death, I think of Gar. That's it. I'm not afraid of death. Dying, sure, but death, he's going to hold the door open. Hello, my friend. That's it. That's all he can do. Life can't hurt you. Death can't hurt you. That should make us fearless, confident, filled with God's love, walking in victory through this life and on into the next. In life and death. Jot this down over all spiritual forces. It says, neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers. The word for rulers there likely means spiritual powers, demons perhaps, over all spiritual forces. People get all weird when they start thinking about angels and demons. Now think about this, the church in Rome that got this letter, they were still taught about Zeus, right? The Greek gods, the Roman gods, they were taught about superstition. There were all of these like, all of these gods in the spiritual realm that get angry and hurt your crops. Right? If you don't keep this God angry, your, your metalworking shop is going to shut down. If you don't keep this God angry, right, the moon's going to turn off. Like You've got to get all these gods happy with you, otherwise fate will condemn you. And here, the Apostle Paul comes along and says, We are more than conquerors over all spiritual forces. Everything supernatural is under the Lord Jesus Christ. What confidence does that give us? What confidence does that give us? There's no fear. It also says over powers, over, over powers, nor height, nor depth, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. All of that just summed up means spiritual forces. Too many Christians live in fear over spiritual forces. They give too much credit to the enemy. And yes, we should be afraid. There is a mighty foe who stands against us. Yes, the spiritual realm is filled with demons who plot to trip us up, to tempt us, to take us down. Um, and there is no one like Satan on earth with the power. When Job was tempted and Satan came into the God, God's presence and said, I want his family gone, I want his health gone, there was nothing Job could do to stop that. Satan has complete power when God approves to test your faith. And he's invisible. And you can't see it coming, and you can't stop it from happening. So should there be a healthy fear? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that should drive us 
to prayer, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, but also to find refuge under the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not your job to win the victory over the forces in the spiritual realms. It's your job to walk in victory over the forces of the spiritual realms. Jesus won the victory. You walk in the victory. And the Bible is very clear. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You've got nothing to fear. You've got nothing to fear. Jesus is supreme, and we are more than conquerors over all spiritual forces. Sometimes people get wrapped up in other superstitious stuff. There's no need, and then, and then because of that, people try and supplement their spirituality with other things, right? With other things. You have no need for luck or magic or mystical objects. You don't need religious gurus. You don't, need, you don't need dead Christians to intercede for you. You don't need some magical bottle of something from the Holy Land. All of that is nonsense. And if you're clinging to stuff like that, it's because you don't understand you're more than a conqueror in Christ. You don't understand the supreme power, spiritual power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished. You only need Jesus. When I walk around some of the countries that we partner with in church planning, like in Ukraine, for example, when I walk around Kiev, uh, the Orthodox Church sets up all of these little markets where you can go there and whatever trouble you have in life, your kids aren't behaving, your health is bad, your finances are bad, they've got, they've got icons that you can use to basically level up in your spiritual power to conquer these things. And it costs money, of course. You, know, you can go home with basically this magic thing that helps up your game spiritually. And, and that's nonsense. You don't need any of that. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. You're not subject to all those fears. Jesus is enough. We're more than conquerors in Christ, in life and death, over all spiritual forces. Jot this down, through all time. Through all time. It says, nor things in the present, nor things to come. Through all time. I don't know if you're more afraid of the present or the future. There's a whole lot in the present that can hurt you. There's a whole lot coming in the future that can hurt you. No fear. No fear. More than conquerors through all time. Maybe you're young and you've got a lot of days ahead of you. No fear. Maybe you're middle-aged like some of us. And you look back and ahead and you don't know what's coming. You're kind of in the middle. No fear. No fear. Maybe you're older and wondering how to make the most of your final days and worried how that's all going to turn out. Nothing changes about God's faithfulness towards you in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Time can't change it. All right? You don't get old to God. It's not like after, you know, 68 years, God's like, oh, I'm done with him. I'm done with him. Put him on layaway. I'll see him when he gets here. Right? I've reached my quota. God is faithful through all time. Jot this down everywhere you go. It says, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everywhere we go. Check this out. This is a picture of the planet I live on. It's called Earth. And there you see the whole world. Anywhere you go, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You can't leave his jurisdiction. Doesn't matter where you go in time or space or on the planet, God is for you. Who can be against you? The idea here is that we are more than conquerors. We are in, this life is one big, long 
victory parade leading us to glory. Doesn't matter what it feels like, that's what it is. Here's a picture of some victory parades that have taken place in the streets of Chicago. You know, check that out. The Bible is like, that's you. You're, you're, you're on the bus. Look, that's you. You're, you're, you're in the parade. We're more than conquerors. And however else you feel in life, this is how it's going to end. Listen, this is how it's going to end. It doesn't matter how long it takes us to get there. This is the ending. And I hope this is tremendously encouraging to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And I hope this is tremendously convicting of you if you're not. God will give you all things in Christ. And he will give you nothing without him. Let's pray.